Welcome everyone to the Two Tongues Podcast. Consider this your invitation to join Kyle and Chris on a journey through our minds. Where we explore the questions that have fascinated us for as long as we can remember. Could anarchy actually work? Does God exist? And just how did the cosmos get here anyway? Let me be the Virgil to your Dante, the Sacagawea to your Lewis and Clark. Let's take the guided tour through the dark chambers of our unconscious, seeking answers to the most important and unsettled questions of our shared existence. Ready or not, here we go. Ready or not? Here we go. Welcome back, one and all, to another episode of the Two Tongues Podcast. Uh, we're going to do some opinion scholarship today. We're going to get back into Edward Edinger, as I promised. So this is uh, depth psychology in the vein of Carl Jung. Um, we've been talking a lot about in uh, the last couple of seasons, but um, uh, this one is part two um, uh, in a series based on ego and archetype, which is um, uh, one of Ed- Edinger's books. Uh, one other we've talked about, and one other still we will be talking about at some point in the future, um, but uh, it's neither here nor there. That one is about um, depth psychology's kind of take on the pre-Socratic philosophers. Very, very, very interesting shit, but that's not for de- for today. Today we're going to do one, I'm going to call it Living Symbols, Christ in Psychology. That's what I'm going to call this one, Living Symbols, Christ in Psychology. So, you know, we're going to talk about two of my favorite subjects, religion and psychology. We're also going to talk about what it means for a symbol to be alive. It's a weird idea, but I think it makes sense if you understand it in the right way. And this is something that Carl Jung will talk about when he brings up uh, the idea of archetypes. He calls them living symbols. What does that mean? Okay, so... Um, if you remember in part one, we were talking about um, individuation, which is one of these psychology terms, um, and it has some religious implications, but really the idea is, just to give you a refresher, because we're going to be talking about this a bit today, um, it's, the, it's the idea of separating yourself. I'm not really sure how to how to put this separating yourself from God is a religious way of putting it separating yourself from your own unconscious maybe is a psychological way of putting it but pulling away from yourself in a way that allows you to see the, uh, this other side of yourself this unconscious side of yourself or this mystery um, that we sometimes associate with, uh, with with our religious intuitions but with this idea of God so you separate yourself from it in order to be able to encounter it and the depth psychologist will say that early on in the development of our egos, you might say when we're you know very young infants, babies, um, that there isn't such a distinction between how we understand ourselves and how we understand the world. Um, we, we almost feel like we're continuous with the cosmos. There's not really a way of proving that a baby feels that way, um, but so this is more of a theoretical uh, idea. Um, but it makes a lot of sense uh, in several different ways. Uh, that we sort of develop this this 
perception of ourselves as being separate from the world um, over time. And if you spend time with babies and you see them develop, you can kind of understand what the depth psychologists are getting at when they talk about this. So you separate yourselves f- yourself from the world, and then you can encounter the world. And psychologically, there's something like that too, where if you can separate yourself from uh, what they call inflation with the idea of God, you can pull yourself away from identifying with God, which is something that apparently uh, is natural to human psychology. And when we're young, that's kind of a natural state. Um, you know, that you might relate that to the image of Adam in the, in the Garden of Eden, walking with God. That's how close they were. And so you pull away so that you can encounter this thing that we're calling God, um, this, this mystery of our own unconscious, whatever that mystery happens to be. Um, so we pull away from it in order to encounter it, and then um, then we can we can make this experience of the world or this experience of God. We can make it a conscious experience. We can make it a part of ourselves, and that's sort of this idea of integrating it to be to you know we're we're separating ourselves from God, and then we're bringing ourselves back into oneness or or into into dialogue at least with this mystery and. It's, it's interesting because even that word dialogue, you know, it's dialogos. It's the logos is the spirit of God um, in the biblical tradition. Uh, philosophically speaking, it's something like mind. So dialogos means essentially two minds. And you're having a dialogue back and forth between these two minds. Now imagine what that means when one of those minds is your own, your ego, and the other is... God, or or the other is the unconscious, and you're having a dialogue between yourself, your conscious self, and your unconscious, between the man and God, and somehow the separation that allows this dialogue to happen, somehow that separation is either false somehow, or it's some deficit that requires remedy, and, and in psychology, there's a great emphasis on healing, psychological healing, and becoming whole again. And it has something to do with this, making the unconscious conscious, integrating these things back into yourself. And Jung talked about this a lot when he talked about the archetype of the shadow or the anima, like this part of ourselves that we don't identify with, that we're afraid to identify with, that we intentionally separate ourselves from, all those things that we don't want to think about ourselves let's say, Um, and we will essentially hide in fear from this unknown part of ourselves our whole lives until we come to realize that 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 thing that we're afraid of, that we're intimidated by, that we're shying away from, that we are disgusted by, um, that that thing belongs to us and is under our control, right? And if if it belongs to us and is under our control, then it becomes less... um, malignant, I guess. If it's under our control, it becomes more of a weapon or a tool that can be used and not one that is, you know, something we have to hide from or cower from. So so this idea of wholeness, unifying the unconscious components of our experience to the conscious ones, there's something deeply powerful and beneficial about that. This is the hero story, right? You go in, the hero goes into the dragon's den does battle with the unconscious, with the dragon of chaos, and r- retrieves a treasure from that, gets a benefit from that. 
and this integration, this this new tool being added to our toolkit, that is the treasure to be found there. And so all this mythological stuff, you know, the hero's story, the hero's journey, um, and all of the, uh, the sort of religious ideas that we've been talking about, they're all related to this idea of individuation, of becoming an individual that stands outside of the cosmos as a separate, self-standing, self-contained entity, a conscious being who can then look at the cosmos, who can then look at the totality, who can then encounter God or the unconscious and bring it within itself, incorporate it into uh, itself. And that brings me to the first section today, which I'm going to call, What is a Symbol? So you may think you know what a symbol is. Um, we're going to make a distinction between a sign and a symbol today and um, try to understand what this means. It, you'll remember that Jung talks about archetypes and images, and these are symbols. So we're going to find out what, what does he really mean or what do the depth psychologists mean when they say symbol. Um, but the archetypes, you know, the, these things that Jung, uh, that Jung brought to our attention as, as inhabiting the collective unconscious, these motivational forces that, that we're born with, that those things are, are symbols. So what the hell does that mean? All right, so let's open it up like this. Edinger says, The problem of life meaning is closely related to the sense of personal identity. The question, what is the meaning of my life, is almost the same as the question, who am I? The latter question is clearly a subjective one, who am I? Thus, we can say meaning is found in subjectivity. But who values subjectivity? So that's the opening, that's the opening line here. So we're talking about meaning. And he makes the point that meaning is subjective. Like, you know, what's meaningful for me might be different from you. The meaning I take something, you know, something to have might be slightly different from yours or largely different from yours. So there's something subjective about meaning. And then he's like, but who values that? If it's different from me to you, you know, it's, it's not objective. I can't rely on it. Uh, what does it even, you know, what value does it have? So, so we're going to answer that question. He says, a sign is a token of meaning that stands for a known entity. A symbol, on the other hand, is an image which points to something essentially unknown, a mystery. So here's, a, here's an important distinction. We're going to be talking about symbols for the rest of this talk today. So we, we want to understand what the hell did the depth psychologist mean by symbol. So he makes a distinction between a sign and a symbol. A sign is something that stands in place for a known thing. So the letter A stands for a sound like this, ah, that's a known thing. A hieroglyph that means the Nile, let's say, stands for a river that exists, that we know uh, where it is and where it goes and all that, right? So it, it allows us to talk about something or to communicate something, and it represents kind of one for one something out there in the world. That's a sign. A sign represents something you know. When a stop sign, you look at the stop sign, you see the shape, the color, the words, you know what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to stop. A symbol is not like that. You look at a symbol, you know it means something, but you don't know what it means. 
So and now he, he, he goes on. He says, a sign communicates objective meaning. A symbol conveys living, subjective meaning and exerts a powerful attraction and fascination on the individual. Right? Cut and dry. A sign has an objective meaning. A symbol has a living, subjective meaning. So I think we sort of understand what subjective means, but how is this attached to this idea of a living? How is a symbol alive? What does that mean? So I, th I struggle with this a little bit, but I've been thinking about it. So a symbol has subjective meaning, which means it has meaning specific to you, unique to you, your subjectivity, your interpretation. That's your meaning unique to you. And it's not necessarily going to be identical, maybe similar, but not identical to others. That meaning is subjective, so it exists within you, a living being. It can only exist within you, a living being. Right. So the symbol is alive because it exists by, by virtue entirely, by virtue of the fact that it exists within a living being. But also, I think the, the idea of living means moving. Like it means becoming understood. Like the, we're in the process of assimilating or making conscious or making ourselves aware of what the meaning is. And so understanding a symbol is something like an action it's a process. It's something that's moving and breathing and happening, right? And so it's living. And I think those are two, are two ways of understanding how a symbol is alive and a sign is dead. A sign has a one objective meaning. It references something out there in the world that is and we already know. A symbol is something that points us to some meaning that we don't know. It's It's... It's something like a quest, right? It pulls you towards, you know, a, a active process of understanding, of making something conscious, of taking something that's in the dark of the unconscious and bringing it to the light of consciousness, taking some mystery and figuring out what the hell it means. Then he says something super interesting, and this relates to archetypes in particular, he says, symbols are spontaneous products of the archetypal psyche. One cannot manufacture a symbol. One can only discover it. Isn't that interesting? So symbols, you have to imagine, and this is sort of hard to imagine, but imagine that a symbol is meaningful and you look at it like, you might look at a painting. Uh, maybe it's like a classical painting, and it's got these images in it from mythology, and you know it's full of meaning, but you don't know any of the stories, and you don't know who these gods are, so you don't have any idea what the meaning is. But when you look at it, you see how complicated and sophisticated it is, how things exist in relationship to one another. It's just chock full of meaning. It's over brimming and spilling over with meaning you just have no fucking idea what that meaning is but make no mistake there's meaning there that's clear you just don't understand what it is so so imagine having that experience of something being meaningful but having nothing to attach it to nothing nothing no knowledge 
no objects, nothing in the here and now, nothing concrete that you can attach it to. It's like free-floating meaning. Um, and it's not particularized. You don't know what it is. You don't know what it is. What kind of experience is that? Where else do you, I mean, where in the world, in the physical, material, conscious world, do you have that type of experience? In nature. So he says you can't manufacture a symbol. Imagine trying to create something meaningful without having any idea what that meaning is. Imagine trying to create that. Something to you that's random and yet is going to contain co coherent meaning. It's, I don't understand how you, would, how you could possibly do that. It would be an accident if you succeeded in doing that. Right? So one can't manufacture a symbol. One can only discover it. Then he says, they transmit life energy, which guides and motivates the individual. So this is how Jung imagined the archetypes. We have these, what he called transpersonal forces, these motivational forces that, that exist in all human beings. They're not, they're not taught or trained. They, they seem to just exist within us as part of what it means to be a human being. And those, those archetypes represent motivational forces. So, you know, you might have, um, trying to think of a good example here, a time in your life when, when you're required to do something that's not normal for you. Maybe it's uncomfortable for you or something you haven't done before. Maybe you have to go out on your own for the first time. Maybe you have some interpersonal conflict for the first time. You have to actually fight physically with some, somebody and you've never had to do that before. There is a instinct, right, that will come out like mama bear protecting her cubs. There's an instinct there that maybe you didn't even know about and you're just ordinarily timid and, and just go with the flow and, and uh, you know, suddenly something happens in your environment and you have this instinct that emerges from nowhere that allows you to fight that fight that you have to fight. Right? And it's associated with all kinds of things. It's associated with physical things. Right? I mean, adrenaline and all kinds of things are happening. But, but what triggered that? Like something psychologically triggered that. And so you have this motivational force that allows you to act in a way that you had no experience with. How? You weren't taught that. It's like some feeling fills you up and causes you to act in a way that you don't ordinarily act. It causes you to kind of override your uh, normal behavior. So this is what is meant by these, these symbols, these archetypes, motivating, but also guiding us. And I think those two ideas are so closely related, but it's difficult to, um, to understand. You know, to be motivated to do something that doesn't necessarily have a direction, right or wrong, progress or, or, what, or uh, you know, moving backwards, but to be guided does. So imagine you have these instincts that are motivating you, you know, in certain circumstances. They're providing some energy to, to, to act in the world or act in a different way that you might, might not ordinarily. And those motivations are moving in one direction. So that, that's more like a guide. It's not like there's a right or a wrong. If I'm backed into a corner 
and I'm shot my shy and timid self and now has to turn into a snarling beast and fight for the first time in my life. It's not it's there is really not a fight or flight in that situation. I have by that motivation is telling me to do one thing. It's not telling me to flee. It's telling me to fucking fight tooth and claw. Right? So you have a you have a, a not only a motivation but you're being guided and that that implies a will. It implies that, that there's one path that is the right path and all the others are wrong. And where is that guidance coming from? You know, guidance seems to have to come from an intelligence. So we have these symbols that live within us, these archetypes that live in our psyche, that emerge in, in, in ways that aren't in our control. And they not only motivate us, but they guide our actions in the world. Strange, right? It's like the way the classic, like the ancient people thought of the gods, these transpersonal gods. Now, Edinger says something interesting. He says, symbols seep into the ego, causing it to identify with them, and then act them out unconsciously. Or they spill out into the external environment via projection. All right, so this is a kind of a truism of depth psychology, but it is those things that you refuse to be conscious of, you project out into the world around you. Um, this is so that, you know, the, the typical um, example of projection is you have a husband and wife and one of them is cheating on the other and the person who's the cheater continues to accuse the, the uh, faithful one of being a cheater. This is a projection, right? I'm, I, I, can't, I can't own the fact that I'm cheating. I'm keeping that hidden from you and everyone else and kind of from myself. So I project it out onto the world out there. Very, very common psychological phenomena. So these symbols seep into the ego, causing the ego to identify with the symbols and then act them out. Right? So let's say that symbol is something like Ares, god of war. Right? Maybe that's the symbol, something like that. This is that, that, that same example we were talking about a moment ago, that... Um, that motivational force, that energy, that rage and power and uh, ability to, um, to, to act violently towards somebody else. Maybe these are all things that we would ordinarily suppress and suddenly they come out in full force because they're required. And it's something like that God, Aries, seeping into the ego, right? Like possessing you. And then you act out the actions of the God of war. Right? You, don't, you don't realize that that's what's happening. You're just acting unconsciously, right? And so this is the nature of a symbol. It's something that has the ability to possess you in a manner of speaking. And then you act out that symbol. Or if you don't, if you don't do that, then you will project that symbol. You will see it everywhere all around you all the time. So projection forces us to confront whatever that thing is again and again until we recognize the need to act it out or to become it, right? I have to recognize the need to have the ability to become Ares, God of War, when it's necessary. I have to recognize that I have that faculty within myself, that it's in my hip pocket and that it's available to me if the circumstances warrant it. But until that comes out unconsciously, I may have no idea that it was even there in my hip pocket all along. It was a part of me all along. 
So if I'm not assimilating that into myself, then I'm just going to see that in the world all the time. It's forcing me to see it. It's forcing me to constantly encounter over and over and over again this symbol that I refuse to become, to become conscious of within myself. It's like, dude, you're going to keep seeing this until you realize that, that that's part of you. Make friends with it, buddy. I'm just going to keep showing it to you until you realize that. Now, if we project, I'm just going to throw this out there because this is something that really baffles me and, and I'm in, in awe of this question. If we project out into the world those things that we are unconscious of, the parts of ourselves that we're unconscious of, we project out into the world. And all of the, with the world and all the objects in it, the world of our perception, it's like, it's like the objects of our perception are symbols, right? They have meaning. It's like, what is an apple? Well, the meaning of an apple to me is something that I can eat, especially if I'm hungry, right? All of these objects in the world have meaning. They're like symbols in a way. And if we project the things that we're not conscious of into the world, it makes me wonder if reality itself, if the world of perception is symbolic, is a psychic projection. The question is, if we project out the things that are unconscious into the world, how do we know the world isn't itself a psychic projection? And this is kind of what the idealists say, that, that the only reality is mind. And so the, the physical world is something like an illusion. Um, you know, the Buddhists and the Hindus say something similar. And so the depth psychologists maybe are... are kind of walking that fine line and they do that they walk that fine line between science and religion and if the world is a psychic projection of, of our unconscious what is encountering the world out there motivating us to do right? if symbols are motivational forces and instincts and the world out there is a symbol motivational force what is that motivating us to do, I wonder? What is it allowing to be? There's some very deep rabbit holes there worth exploring. But that's for another time. Alright, so he move on. He says, Symbols have legitimate effect only when they change our psychic state or conscious attitude. So the ultimate goal is to make the symbolic process conscious. All right, so let's pull back a little bit. Symbols have effect only when they change our psychic state or our conscious attitude. It's like, okay, a symbol that doesn't have any effect on me is not a symbol, really. It doesn't have any power, so it's nothing. A symbol has to act upon me. It has to make some difference to me. Or it's not powerful. You know, it's, not, it's, it's impotent. It's not a symbol. It doesn't have meaning. And in order for it to change our psychic state, it has to be made conscious, right? The things that are unconscious don't have any effect on me. Maybe they do, but I'm not aware of it, so they don't, in a manner of speaking. I, they, have to, they have to become conscious of them. I don't know if this ever happens to you, but it's like things will... 
think behaviors that you have um, after sufficient time has gone by, you look back at those behaviors and you think to yourself, oh, that's why I was doing that. Right? Does that ever happen to you? I'm trying to think of a good example, but it's hard on the spot. You know, you look back at something from your past and you're like, oh, that's why I was doing that. And it's that moment, that aha moment that puts all that into context and helps you understand why you were acting the way you were acting. Because, because whatever that motivation was became conscious to you. And so there's a way in which something can be acting on you and affecting you, and you're completely unaware of it because it's unconscious. That doesn't mean that it's not potent or effective. It's just that it's like happening to you. It's like a force out there that you can't control. And the moment you make it conscious, you understand it, and it has meaning, you put it in its proper place, then it becomes something useful to you. It's like, ah, that's why I was doing that. So if I don't do that anymore, you know, then I won't have that problem, right? Then it becomes useful to you. So he says the ultimate goal is to make the symbolic process conscious. To make the unconscious conscious. He says to become conscious of symbols, we first need to know how a symbol behaves when it is unconscious. All right, so now he's saying, look, look you, want to f- you want to find yourself in a situation where you're understanding this, and you're coming to this point where you, where you think to yourself, okay, I understand that, there, that there's an unconscious component to my experience, and I understand that there's value in whatever that stuff is that I'm unconscious of. So if I can make that stuff conscious, and I can earn something from it, and I can become greater as a, as a, as a being, right? Well, once you know that, then you might ask yourself, can I explore the unconscious? Can I go in there intentionally looking for those things that are, that are valuable to me? Is there a way for me to explore the unconscious, to go in there like a fucking conquistador? And so this is what he says. Like, if you want to become conscious of symbols, you first need to be able to identify them, to understand a symbol when you see one, when you encounter one. And by that he says... You need to know how a symbol behaves when it is unconscious. So how do, we, how do we find those things? How do we be on the lookout for them? Edinger says, An unconscious symbol is lived, but not perceived. Experienced only as a wish or an urgency towards some action. The image behind the urgency is not seen. All right, there's more to this, but let me stop for just a second. An unconscious symbol is lived but not perceived. It's like I'm acting it out. Now, you could see it. If you were standing on the outside and watching somebody's behavior over a long enough period of time, you would see it. But they don't. It's not, they're unconscious of it. It's like, um, I don't know, you notice somebody has a bad habit or something. Um, you you can see it, and you're like, God damn, dude, stop doing that. But they they just continue to do it. They're, it's like it's like involuntary. They don't they don't they don't even know that they're doing it. That kind of a thing. So an unconscious symbol is lived but not perceived. Right, I'm acting it out, but I'm not really aware of what it is I'm acting out. It's experienced as a wish or an urgency. So I don't know what might come to your mind, but. I'm at a point in my life where I'm able to look back at myself as a younger man and see some of the development 
you know, like in retrospect, to see some of the development of, of what happened to me in my life. And I remember, you know, like maybe early in college is a good is a good uh, example, is seeing, encountering people that I admired for one reason or another. It's like I admired some respected person, some respected man, maybe it's a professor, you know, whatever. I, I admired some respected man without realizing that the admiration I was feeling, like what does that mean, right? The admiration I was feeling is a motivation. It's a feeling that's causing me to take some action or move in some direction, right? Admiration is a motivation for me to become as that respected person is. Like I see that respected person. I admire them for having achieved it. And what that means is, I want to be a respected person myself. And the admiration is the motivation, is the instinct to pull me in that direction, to guide me into the next phase of my life. And you see that with, well, you see that with things that you value, like admiration, but you also see it with things that, that disgust you in the opposite direction. Like you see somebody acting in a certain way and you're like, I never want to be that guy. Same thing, pulling you away from that direction. So this is a way that you might and, and you might understand that the unconscious symbol, the symbol of the respected, venerable, honorable man, that image that I was seeing in you know in this human being, that was that was it had some real force on my psychology, and I felt that in the physical world. It's associated with brain chemistry. This feeling of admiration, right? And it's not just some reflection of that person. It's literally a force pulling me towards it, pulling me in that direction, telling me, tapping me on the shoulder and whispering in my ear, you want that for yourself. That is what you should become. Right? That's a symbol. He says the image behind the urgency is not seen, right? That's how it's, that's why it's unconscious. So the image is like, the motivation or the reason. Why do I admire this person? That, that part's not seen. It's just felt. It's unconscious until it is made conscious. Edinger says, the ego identified with a symbolic image becomes its victim, condemned to live out the meaning of the symbol rather than to understand it consciously. I might say, until you understand it consciously. So a couple of examples here, because the way this is phrased um, challenges the last example. All right, so this is a, it's maybe an insensitive example, but you'll see what I mean. Somebody who, uh, we all know somebody like this, a lady, friend, family member, a lady, continues to have one bad relationship after the next, after the next, after the next, always seemingly dating these assholes or troublemakers or just over just overall bad guys over and over and over again you're doing this and you're just sitting there and it, it, watching it happen over and over again like why are you continuing to make the same mistake well well because she has daddy issues right and she and she doesn't realize that she doesn't realize that she's continuing to date the people, just like her absentee father or just like her abusive father or whatever it is, she continues to do this to herself because she doesn't realize what it is she's doing. It's, it's unconscious. 
how about another example? You have a certain goal and you and you have trouble reaching that goal. You continue to fail. You try and you fail. You try and you fail. You try and you fail. Um, good example of this, um, trying to, uh, trying to lose a little weight, trying to get off, uh, you know, reverse all the COVID damage. And, um, I'm, I'm struggling and failing, struggling and failing. And I know, I mean, I have enough, uh, distance for myself to know what it is I'm doing, exactly what it is I'm doing. It's like, I'm failing to sacrifice the things I need to sacrifice to achieve that goal. And, and I pretend like I'm doing all the things that I need to do, but the things I know I really need to get rid of, like let's say the alcohol or whatever it is that I love so much, I pretend like that didn't even occur to me to get rid of that thing. And I go through the same pattern, go over and over and over again, hitting that brick wall over and over again, never achieving my goal because it never occurs to me. It remains unconscious to me that I'm sabotaging myself. So you can see, if I become conscious of that, like, oh, that's what I'm doing. I can see it clearly now. Then, and only then, will I be able to overcome that. And that brings me to the next section, which I'm going to call Possessed by Symbols. Possessed by Symbols. Okay, he goes like this. Instinct contains its own hidden meaning, revealed only by perceiving the image embedded in the instinct. So this is, this is weird, but it's going to get interesting. Okay, instinct contains its own meaning. So we understand that instincts are things that we don't really have conscious control over. You know, the way you feel or react or respond in a certain way is instinctual. It's not trained. It's just part of us. So, yeah, the meaning of it might not be conscious, it might not be known. I might act in a certain way and only after seeing the action and thinking about it, why did I do that? Then only then will it start to make to to, to be clear what the meaning is. So another idea of, of uh, is taking something unconscious, in this case an instinct, and making it conscious. And there young always connected archetypes to instincts. So I think this is a really good way of talking about it. And he's like, these instincts, like the instinct for self-preservation or the instinct to have children or to, the instinct to, to be creative, um, you, know, the, you know, whatever it might be, that these instincts we're going to feel just by merit of being human. We don't have to try. It's just going to happen. There's no way around it. And there's meaning there in those instincts, but we're not yet aware of them. We have that kind of... We have to kind of come under the power of that instinct so that we have the example in front of us to say, this is what happened. Oh, and so this is what it must mean. And the way he says that is that we have to perceive the image embedded in the instinct. And this is hard for me to explain. I, I talked about this before when I said that um, I had a mystical experience of my own, and one of the side effects of this mystical experience was starting to think much more visually than I ever did before. And I talked a lot about there being clouds of associations. When you're talking about meaning especially, if I'm talking about the meaning of a word or the meaning of a symbol, there's these cloud of associated ideas and words and, and, and things that are attached to it. So the, the sun, let's say, has heat and light and circle and infinity and 
photosynthesis and all kinds of things that are surrounding it. And that, I think, is what Jung means when he says an image. Right? There's all of this cloud of associations that surround something. There's something related to all these images around it that feed into what this thing means. And so the image is something like the intermediary between the unconscious and the conscious. The image is something like the unconscious speaking to the conscious. And it can't do that in any direct way. Ian McGilchrist, another psychologist, does a great job of talking about this because he studies deeply um, the brain function and the uh, right and left hemispheres of the brain corresponding loosely to uh, conscious and unconscious processes. And they can't talk directly to each other. And dreams are a really good manifestation of this. It's like there are things that, that, are, that are clear to your unconscious that has to be made clear to your consciousness. And there's no direct way of doing it. So it's like this, it's like, boy, you know, in, in religious um, stories where they talk about uh, human beings can't look on the face of God, they have to put their their countenance down to the ground. He's too bright to even see. Or, you know, the voice of God or the voice of the angels comes screaming through a burning bush. Like there has to be a intermediary for the divine to communicate to the mortal realm. There has to be an intermediary. And the image, psychologically, is the intermediary. It's the way God speaks to, to his, its creation. It's the way the unconscious communicates to the conscious through the image. And he says, one way of discovering the hidden image is by analogy. So here's, here's where it's going to get good. Jung here, Carl Jung, is going to give us um, an example from his practice of something like this. So Edinger's going to give us this story from Young, and he says, Young says, and this is directly from Young, I recall a patient who was in the unconscious grip of a powerful symbolic image, which required him to live it out as a symptom until he could understand it consciously. I'm thinking of a case of trans, transvestitism, transvestit, transvestism, maybe that's how it's said. A young man who had a strong urge to dress in women's clothes. So, ordinarily, he felt shy, inferior, and impotent. But when wearing some article of feminine apparel, felt confident, effective, and sexually potent. Now, what does such a symptom mean? What general and mythological parallels can we find? All right, so so Jung has this has this patient who likes to dress like like uh, in women's clothes, um, and he comes to the psychologist and says, "I don't know why I, I do this. It's weird. I feel weird about it. Well, I don't know why I do this, but I keep doing it." And Jung says, "Let's look at parallels. Let's look at can we find any general or mythological parallels to this problem you're having?" So what is he doing? He's trying to build this cloud of association around the symptom so that he can understand what it means. And where does he go? He goes to mythology. 
always young goes to mythology because these stories are very ancient stories and they represent and they they've survived to the present and there's a reason for that because they have some meaning that's relevant from from the very ancient times all the way up to the present so he looks at those stories and this is what he says in the odyssey poseidon stirs up a frightful storm which would have drowned odysseus except that Eno, a sea goddess, comes to his assistance. She tells him to, quote, take my veil and put it around your chest. You can come to no harm so long as you wear it. Eno's veil is the archetypal image that lies behind the symptom of transvestism. The veil represents the support and containment which the mother archetype can provide during a dangerous activation of the unconscious. Right. So what Jung is saying here is that the mother archetype is one of these symbols that we carry with us, that that's lives with us from the time we're you know, conceived. And the image of the mother is this caring, nurturing image. And when we find ourselves in a dangerous activation of the unconscious, when we find ourselves in chaos, sometimes we look for the comfort of the mother archetype. And I can't help but think of images of, you know, like from, from movies or whatever, of like these tough, tough guys, you know, maybe they're soldiers, maybe they're uh, mobsters or something, and they get, they get mortally wounded. And they're these tough guy characters, right? But that are laying there dying. And what are they doing? They're, they're asking for their mothers, you know? It's sad in a strange way. It's like this grown man wants his mother in this situation. He wants to become a baby and to be taken care of and to be cured by this super personal power that we call the mother. He says another parallel is provided by the priests of the Maga Mater in ancient Rome. That's the cult of the great mother goddess. He says after their consecration, these priests would wear feminine dresses and allow their hair to grow long. He says, these parallels show that the urge to transvitism is based on the unconscious need for a supporting contact with the mother archetype. To recognize the archetype, to see the symbolic image behind the symptom, immediately transforms the experience. It may be just as painful, but now it has meaning. Right, so you see the the idea that this guy wants to dress up in women's clothes. Maybe that doesn't go away now that he understands, you know, what it what it might mean that he's putting on those clothes because he feels in some way that he needs the protection that he that he received from his mother when he was an infant. That this image of this sort of supernatural protective nurturing force that we call our mothers, right? And when you're a fetus and when you're a baby, it's it's no. It's not distinct from the idea of God at all, your mother. And to want that, to want that comfort, to want to, to unload your, your burdens and responsibilities and just be taken care of, that that's an, an urge that we have, an instinct that we have. And knowing you have that instinct maybe changes your, your um, relationship with that instinct. Maybe you realize... That's what you want, and you can't have that. You're an adult, you know. You can't. We can't rely on somebody else. 
you certainly can't rely on your mother, you know, uh, maybe she's dead, maybe she's a frail old lady at this point. Even so, she's not the goddess that she was to you when you were an infant or a fetus. So you have to find that comforting power within yourself. You have no other choice. And that's to, that's to manifest, you know, the thing that's unconscious, to make it conscious within yourself. And you can see how that would be something like another tool in your tool, toolkit, right? That to be able to provide comfort to yourself in the way that you thought, you know, only your mother could. He says, symptoms are disturbing states of mind, which are un- we are unable to control. They are intolerable precisely because they are meaningless. Almost any difficulty can be borne if we can discern its meaning. All right, so we figure out the meaning, and in so doing, we've made that thing conscious to ourselves. And it changes the whole game. Symptoms are disturbing because they're they're meaningless. Once you give them meaning and context, they're not disturbing anymore. They're not symptoms anymore. Then he says something interesting. He says, almost any difficulty can be born if we can discern its meaning. So even the harshest, you know, unconscious pitfall can become necessary and valuable if we understand its meaning. And it reminds me, I don't know if, if anybody ever wrote, uh, read uh, Man's Search for Meaning. It's a book by Viktor Frankl, who was a uh, concentration camp survivor with a terrible, tragic story. And what he says in that book is seeing people in the concentration camps in terrible conditions, wasting away and dying, and seeing the differences between the people who, who lived, who survived and hung on, and the people who died. And Viktor Frankl said, those who have a why can bear with almost any how. Right? Edinger says, almost any difficulty can be born if we can discern its meaning. Frankl says, those who have a why can bear with almost any how. So I think there's a serious connection here. Those who have a why, those who have the meaning can bear with almost any how, with almost any trial, tribulation, circumstance. You can justify it. And that makes it not okay, but I don't know. He says, Our waking life is composed of a series of moods, feelings, ideas, and urgencies. These psychic states we experience either as a succession of meaningless symptoms or as a series of numinous encounters between the ego and the transpersonal psyche. All right, there's more to that, but fuck, that's good. This is something that's particularly relevant to me, and I told you guys this before, but I'll just mention um, one of these mystical experiences that I've had that I've talked about. the message that I got from it was something like all the beauty and the magic and the intrigue and the fascination that you encounter in this mystical state of mind is available to you in the world out there. 
It's not, this isn't a special situation. This isn't a special place or, or circumstance, this mystical state of mind. It's like reality is mystical. Existence is mystical. And you have to learn to see the world, the people that you encounter and the world out there, just as ex- identical to the experience you have in this mystical state of mind. And when you can do that, then you're going to have achieved something valuable. So this is something I'm still working on. And, I, and this relates to this, this statement here. It's like your life, your moods, feelings, ideas, motivations, all the stuff that, that we, we think of as our existence, as our lives. We can see that either as a succession of meaningless symptoms, right? This is the nihilistic view of the world. You know, there's no meaning. Um, you know, it, 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 this is just an accident, a cosmic accident with no meaning. You can live your life like that. And, and every experience you have is just a meaningless, you know, joke. Or all of those same experiences can be to you encounters between the ego and the and the transpersonal psyche, between between creation and creator. And he says the sages of India recognize this and their doctrine of Maya. You don't know that the Hindu idea or the Buddhist idea of Maya is illusion. It's the world of our perception being an illusion. So he says the sages of India recognize this in their doctrine of Maya. Striving for release from the urgencies of pain and pleasure is equivalent to the search for the symbolic life. Nirvana is the discovery of the symbolic life, which releases man from living a succession of meaningless symptoms. See, so the Buddhists will say that your nirvana is a release from the process of, of continual birth and death and rebirth the, from the cycle of reincarnation. And, and from the psychological perspective, that constant process of, of you know, uh, reincarnation is like living living out meaningless symptoms. You're going to continue to live out the meaninglessness until you realize that there's meaning in it. And that will change everything. And I think that's a message for the nihilists. uh, And there's many of them in the world. And that brings me to the next section, which I'm going to call the symbolic life. This one's short and sweet, but I, I had to leave it in, and you'll see why. It's really, really pretty interesting. He starts off talking about um, Jewish, ancient Jewish lore. So this isn't from the Torah, uh, but it's sort of a legend. And it goes like this. An old Jewish legend states, Prior to the birth of a child, God calls the seed of the future human being before him. The soul pleads with God not to be sent from the life beyond this world. But God answers, The world to which I send thee is better than the world in which thou wast. And when I formed thee, I formed thee from this earthly fate. I formed thee for this earthly fate. God orders the angel to initiate this soul into all the mysteries of that other world. And the soul experiences all the secrets of the beyond. At the moment of birth, however, the angel extinguishes the light of knowledge burning above it. And the soul enters this world, having forgotten its lofty wisdom, but always seeking to regain it. 
I don't know if you've heard that before. I think it's really, really cool. So the idea here is that before a child is born on earth, its soul is brought before God, and God teaches the soul all of the knowledge, right? Everything that there is to know about the world of being, uh, about the here and now, the conscious world. But right at the moment of birth, it, it forgets all of it. And then its whole life seeks to regain that knowledge that it once had. All right, now I tell you that story to tell you this one. He says, the theme of the prenatal origins of the ego is an archetypal image, right? So this is the idea that you existed before you existed, right? Uh, there's a biblical biblical phrase about that where God says, I knew you before you were conceived or something like that, right? So you existed before you were born. You, were, you, you exist eternally. You've always existed, that kind of thing. So you have prenatal pre-birth origins. He said, having that, that is a, in itself an archetypal image. And he, he gives us another example. He says, Plato and the Phaedo suggests that all learning is a recollection of prenatal knowledge, which is innate, but forgotten. Right? He said, all knowledge is a remembering. In psychological terms, this means that the archetypal forms of human experience are pre-existent. They await incarnation within a particular individual. All right, so here's the idea. Just like you might think that your soul exists eternally until, it, until it's manifest, until it's incarnated into a human body, the archetypes, they also pre-exist. Right? Every human being who's ever lived has had an experience of the anima or the animus, has had an experience of the shadow, the mother archetype, the, you know, the great father, all this stuff. We all have these experiences. Um, we have them and we also become them. Right? So you, know, you have this experience of a father as, as a child or a mother, and then you grow up and you become a father or a mother. It's like we all have these patterns that we see and imitate and live out and, 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 and act out in, in, in existence. So these things, these patterns of existence that we all follow, they existed before us. It's like we pop onto the scene and we follow the same pattern that every human being that's ever lived has followed, right? So the, the pattern pre-exists the incarnation. The pattern is the symbol, is the archetype. So in psychological terms, this means that the archetypal forms of human experience are pre-existing and they await an incarnation with a particular individual, right? You, they, they become manifest, incarnated into the world. And that implies another world. It implies an unconscious realm where things exist. That's where they come from when they come into being. And the way they come into being is through incarnation, to become embodied, to become material, to become conscious. And that brings me to the next section, which I'm going to call Symbol Incarnate. I named this Symbol Incarnate as a way of maybe contrasting a earlier section, which was called Possessed by Symbols, right? So I think there's an important difference between being possessed and incarnating. They're similar, but cr 
critically different. So let me get into this. Edinger says, when the Christian myth is examined carefully in the light of analytical psychology, the conclusion is inescapable that its underlying meaning is the quest for individuation. So, all right, so what is he saying here? He's saying, when you look at the Christian myth in particular, you'll see you know, with your psychological lens on, that everything about this, the story of Jesus is about individuation. It's about coming to know God and then having a relationship with God. And so he, I'll go on. He says, Jesus Christ is both God and man. As Jesus, he is a human being living a particular limited existence. As Christ, he is the Logos that has existed from the beginning the eternal deity itself. Right? So you see, God is like the symbol or the archetype, and Jesus is uh, the incarnation of that, the embodiment, the making real or making conscious, the eternal deity. He says, understood psychologically, this means that Christ is simultaneously a symbol for the self and the ego. He says, the state of being an autonomous individual can be achieved only by a separation from unconscious identification with others. Parents are the most frequent objects of unconscious identification. Jesus said, call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Right? To call no man father means to withdraw all projections of the father archetype and discover it within Right? If, if, if the Father isn't out there, then you can only find it within. He says the same idea is in Matthew 16, where he says, If a man let himself be lost for my sake, he will find his true self. In psychological terms, the phrase could be read, If a man will lose his ego for my sake, he will find the self. Let's keep going. Let's roll right along. He says, let us consider Matthew 5. Matthew 5, it says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Understood psychologically, the meaning would be, the ego which is aware of its own emptiness of spirit is in a fortunate position because it is now open to the unconscious and has the possibility of experiencing the archetypal psyche or the kingdom of heaven in biblical terms. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, right? Only when you realize that your spirit is insufficient, that there is that more is needed, only when you come to that conclusion will you, will you realize that there is more to yourself. The thing that, that you need is there all along. You just have to, it's unconscious. You have to make it conscious. Jesus said, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Edinger says, in order to withdraw projections and assimilate their content into one's own personality, it is necessary to experience the loss of the projection. They will be comforted when the loss, when the lost projected value has been recovered within the psyche. Right. So if I'm looking for uh, the father out there and there's no father to be found, then I have to look within to find the father within. It's like I'll never look within if I'm always looking if I'm looking for it out here. Right, So as soon as the projections go away, then I have no choice but to look back within, then I find it. 
Then I found the treasure. Then I have recovered something within my psyche, right? All the value of the father archetype. It's now a tool in my toolkit. It's now a conscious part of myself. I'm no longer looking for it out there. I found it within, right? So blessed are those who mourn. Mourn for the, for the, for the projection that's gone. But they shall be comforted because they find that thing within themselves. Then he says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Edinger says, It is a basic principle of analytical psychology that the unconscious takes the same attitude towards the ego as the ego takes towards the unconscious. If the ego is merciful, it will receive mercy from within. The corollary is also a quote of Jesus, All who take the sword will perish by the sword. All right, so this is interesting. If you take, if you assume that the unconscious is, is vast and scary and uh, something to, to hide from and, and, and all that, then it will become scary and dangerous to you. But if you think of it as a part of yourself, if you think of it as a tool in your toolkit, if you think about it as what connects you to the greatest power that exists, then suddenly it becomes a, a weapon, a tool. It becomes something that is, uh, uh, you know, it takes on the same attitude towards you as you take towards it. And what comes to my mind here, you know, I don't really have much else to kind of illustrate this. So what comes to my mind here is, a certain type of experience of the unconscious. It's one in which, um, often through psychological or through uh, psychedelic drugs, uh, folks encounter um, a, p- a part of their psychology that they've never encountered before. Um, you know, when that sort of thing happens, uh, a bad trip is not out of the question. It's like you're you're encountering something scary, something vast and powerful and hidden that used to as far as you're concerned, not exist. And suddenly, in this experience, you're confronted with it. Um, you can't run from it. Um, it's terrifying. So I think this idea of mitigating that sort of a bad trip experience, because the only way that I've seen it work is to change your perspective towards the experience if you're afraid of the experience and you try to like will yourself to calm down and to and to uh suppress the fear then all of a sudden another side of that experience reveals itself and it's joyful and and powerful and uh you know the the, the two sides of the same experience but it has everything to do with your attitude towards it and so this context to me seems to fit exactly with that sort of a, of a bad trip. If you've had that experience, especially if you've overcome it, you'll know exactly what I mean. Now, all these quotes, these Jesus quotes we've been talking about so far are often called the Beatitudes. And I tell you that because the next, the next quote uses that phrase. The major point of the Beatitudes, as understood psychologically, is praise of the emptied ego. According to Jesus' teachings, the ego must be emptied of such inflation, inflated identification before it can perceive the transpersonal psyche as something separate from itself. Right? So you have to empty all, you have to empty yourself of, of, of everything in order to realize that there is more to yourself than, than there's, there's something left over. 
right? There's something great left over. You've emptied yourself and there's something else there. Then you have to come to know what that something else is. That's the unconscious. That's God. In, in, in religious parlance. And then he goes on, he says, according to the kenosis doctrine, all right, and this is just a religious doctrine, uh, he says it means the incarnation of Jesus was a voluntary process of emptying. That's what kenosis means, that Jesus emptied himself and, and was filled with God. That's how Jesus is God, something like that. So he says, according to the kenosis doctrine, the incarnation of Jesus was a voluntary process of emptying whereby he divested himself of his eternal and infinite divine attributes in order to take human form. This image of incarnation by emptying fits precisely the process of ego development during which the ego progressively relinquishes its original identification with the self in order to achieve a limited but actual existence. Now what this is really referring to here is what happens to us when we, when our conscious ego is, is, is originally developed? So um, as a uh, fetus or as a very young baby, like I mentioned before, the psychology there is sort of unknown, but, uh, you know, anecdotally, and we can tell, uh, uh, you know, um, we have reasons to believe that the consciousness of the, the infant or the fetus is not, um, it's not organized like an adults right we don't it doesn't understand itself as a self you know a fetal consciousness doesn't really understand itself as something separate from its mother and even after birth right and there is a you know, religious rituals that, that are tied to this where where a baby won't be named for several days um you know after it was born or or um or even uh, a certain period of months uh go by before the baby is considered to have received its soul you know, this is not an uncommon thing. The baby has to be alive for a certain stretch before it receives its soul. And this is the idea of, of becoming an ego, right? becoming its own self, a self-standing individual. So you have to pull, you have to literally rip yourself free from this unconscious attachment to, uh, you know, to, to, to your, your, the life of your mother, really. So you relinquish this original identification with the self, this identification of you being a part of your mother or a part of the cosmos um, in order to become you know, a self-standing individual with your own, you know, own unique existence. Then he says in Matthew 5, Jesus says, Do not resist one who is evil and love your enemies. We're being instructed to offer no resistance to the rejected side of one's own nature. The shadow must be accepted. Only then can wholeness of personality be approached. All right, so when Jesus says, do not resist one who is evil and to love your enemies, what he's saying here, psychologically, is that the things that have gone wrong within your enemies or the people you consider evil, whatever the reason is, they're your enemies or evil. Whatever that is exists within you. And if you don't know that, and if you don't come into conscious control of that, then you run the risk of being evil and being an enemy just as they are. But if you make those things conscious, the shadow conscious, 
if you integrate that archetype, then it becomes a tool on your belt, right? A part of you and not possessing you. So several gospel passages emphasize the importance of that which has been lost. For example, the parables of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the prodigal son. These parables refer to the lost or repressed portion of the personality. The lost part is the most important because it takes with it the possibility of wholeness. The last becomes first, and the stone that the builders rejected becomes the cornerstone. So this again, the idea of the anima or the shadow, the repressed or the unconscious part of ourselves, have to be recovered and made conscious in order for us to become whole. In order for us to know what it is that we are, right? We are, we are more than just the ego. We are more than just consciousness. We are both conscious and unconscious. And that whole is something we, we have to come to realize we are. All right, in Matthew 19, Jesus says, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess. And the same point is made of the kingdom of heaven. It is described as a treasure in a field or a pearl of great price, so that when a man finds it, he sells all that he has to obtain it. The treasure is the self. It costs all that one has. Right? So the self is this unconscious part of, of our experience. You can call that God, and I think we would be on the same page. The treasure right, is the self. And why does it cost all that one has? Because you have to, as Jesus said, you have to be totally emptied. You have to get rid of yourself entirely. Get rid of the ego. And when you do that, you'll find that what you what remains and what you still are, and you might, might be surprised anything remains, but what still stands is the self. And that's how you discover that you are unconscious as well, that you are God as well as mortal. And that's the totality. He says, The image of Christ gives us a vivid picture of the individuated ego, which is conscious of being directed by the self. And he quotes from chapter 8 of John, where Jesus says, I do nothing of myself. He that sent me is with me. I do always those things that please him. Right? So you can imagine, if Jesus has emptied himself and found there God within him, and he says, I do nothing of myself. He that sent me is with me. Right? I am, I am a, a, a form filled with God. And God is acting through me. That's what he's saying. And you can understand when we're talking about archetypes, acting through you, you know, you acting out these, these instincts. It's something like that. He says, the self, in order to achieve realization in the world, must submit to incarnation in the finite. Young says, all opposites are of God. Therefore, man must bend to this burden. And in so doing, he finds that God, in his oppositeness, has taken possession of him, incarnated himself in him. He has become a vessel filled with divine conflict. Fuck, that is so good. 
God has incarnated himself in him. Now, you could say that about Jesus, no problem. But Jung is saying that about every human being. Every human being is God incarnated. Amazing. He has become a vessel filled with divine conflict. Lastly, he says, Is the individuated ego both man and God? Ego and self? I'll stop there for a second. I think that's fascinating. Is the ego, individual ego both man and God? Right? Is Jesus both man and God? But then he says ego and self. Right? So man, he relates to ego. And God, he relates to self. And now he comes right out and says it. Are we as human beings both mortal and immortal? Both God and man? Both conscious and unconscious? Then he says, once it is realized that a world-creating quality attaches to human consciousness as such, the terms ego and self are seen to refer to different experiential levels of the same archetypal psychic process. Right? God and man are two different levels of the same thing. He says the ego is the seat of consciousness and is doing God's creative work in its effort to realize itself through the way of individuation. Man. Conscious experience, the material world of our conscious experience, exists so that God can realize itself. That brings me to my conclusion. The psychologist Dr. Jordan Peterson said something once. It's always stuck with me. He said that human beings are more than we suppose by a tremendous margin. And that what we do... Uh, oh, excuse me. And what we do not suppose is attached to the, quote, cosmic significance of our lives. So we're more than we suppose by a tremendous margin. And whatever it is that we, that we aren't supposing is attached to the cosmic significance of our lives. And this struck me as deeply true. But at first... And perhaps still, I did not really understand it. I struggled to put my finger on just exactly what we are as humans that we do not realize we are. What goes unnoticed about us, even to ourselves. Dr. Peterson, Dr. Young, and the depth psychologists have helped me to understand that there is, in fact, an unknown component of our human experience. The unconscious. Not just this, but also that the unconscious is a great and powerful mystery which acts upon us and in the world, with or without our knowing. So this unconscious, whatever it may be, is autonomous in a manner of speaking. It has a will of its own and a potency of its own. It is a part of us and yet seemingly also the puppeteer concealed expertly in the darkness, pulling our strings. What is this thing which is me and isn't me? In psychological terms, the is me part is our ego, and the isn't me part, the archetypal psyche, or self with a capital S. 
And it is capitalized quite intentionally, and for exactly the reason you think. Remember the question that Edinger posed. Is the individual ego both man and God, ego and self? Here you see the connection between psychology and religion laid out in the open. What the depth psychologist calls ego, he understands to mean man, and self, he understands as God. So you see, that unknown power that lives within us, that invisible puppeteer behind our drives, instincts, and motivations, this is nothing less than God itself. We are one with God, always and forever, but are not conscious of it, and so go on struggling with the mystery of our own being. But it is possible to become conscious of the God within. Call this process individuation or religious experience. There is no distinction. The symbols that inhabit us are breadcrumbs. They are evidence of the truth within us that can be discovered. And in so doing, the symbols are transformed by meaning, by understanding. The unconscious is made conscious. God is made flesh. And we cease to be possessed by them and instead become their incarnation. There is a subtle but critical difference between possession and incarnation. Both bring to mind the image of a spirit entering a body. But possession is unconscious and challenges the will. Incarnation, on the other hand, is embodied, fully conscious, and fully one in will. Like the example of Jesus, Edinger tells us, quote, Ego and self are but different experiential levels of the same archetypal process. Well, there you have it. That's one avenue explored, but infinitely more still to go. I hope you enjoyed thinking along with us. I know, I know, it's not easy work. Thinking, it's hard and full of uncertainties, but I'm grateful for the company as we trek through this together. Here's to hoping that the juice is worth the squeeze. See what I did there? Let's find out together in the next episode.